Good morning. This morning we finish our series, I Believe, um, a series on the core Christian beliefs in our world and the common concerns that people have about them. And you saw a couple of those maybe in that opening video. And today we look at the Word of God, uh, the Bible. We're in the part of the series with the Holy Spirit, and uh, we look at the Bible, and people have an objection today, and they say, well, the Bible isn't trustworthy, and therefore I can't open it, I can't believe it. Well, let's read from scriptures uh, from Luke chapter 1, where Luke, the doctor, introduces himself to his audience, Theophilus, and he tells him how he came about uh, writing the account of Jesus of Nazareth. And then in Luke 24, we'll skip ahead to the end of the gospel, and there at the end of the gospel, we'll look at Jesus the day of his resurrection, walking along the road with, his, with two disciples that don't recognize him, and Jesus opens up the scripture to them. And I pray that we have answers to that big concern, can I trust the Bible by the end of it, by God's grace. Here it is, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 and 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And chapter 24. Now, that same day, Jesus' resurrection day, two of them, Jesus' disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and they talked and discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you, only, are you, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that, I have, that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was with them at the table, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? This is God's word. The Bible says that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit, and it says that uh, 
the Word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword in Hebrews chapter 4. It cuts and penetrates to the heart that it divides bone and marrow, that it, it, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. However, in the world today, and maybe in the season of life that you're in, or maybe you've had a season of life like this, um, people have objections to the Word of God. They have a few objections that they have that actually prevent them from even opening up and cracking that book open and letting the lion go to work. We heard about that last uh, two weeks ago. We heard about the lion out of the cage that goes to work on your heart. And a couple of those objections that come up are, are interesting to look at, and we need to understand them when we look at the story of Luke, the writer, the doctor, the uh, investigator, and we look at the story of the Emmaus disciples. First of all, here's one big objection that people have to God's word. The first objection is this, that the Bible is not historically reliable. In other words, the Bible is historically unreliable. And they say this, well, the Bible includes uh, supernatural things like Jesus walking on water and dividing up bread and fish and feeding thousands and thousands of people um, among a resurrection from the dead. People say, those things don't happen in my life. Those don't happen in my world. And so I cannot trust this book because this book is talking about uh, myths and, and miracles and things that I, I, I just can't believe in. I can't. And, then, and so they, they say, I, I'm going to close the door to believing the Bible, or at least I'm going to be very skeptical of the Bible because it includes these things in them. But did you hear the words of Luke? A well-educated, sane doctor in the first century A.D., he writes this. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. In other words, Luke is saying this. When I'm drawing up this account, Theophilus, he's writing to either a Greek, a Roman leader, or he's writing to a group of people that call themselves Theophilus. Whatever it is, he's, he's doing a public document. He's producing a public document. He says, I went around to... All the people that lived around Jesus who are still alive today, eyewitnesses like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and I asked them about Lazarus being raised from the dead. I asked them for that story. I went to that boy with the fish and the bread, and he's still alive, and he told me that story, and I wrote it down. And he was around to all these different witnesses, the people that saw these things happen themselves, and he says, I'm writing them down for you. The objection is the Bible is historically unreliable, but when we look at the account that Luke writes, and really all the gospel writers, they write their accounts too early for it to be historically unreliable. What I mean is this. Their audience that they're writing to can check the facts in the first century A.D., um, I've brought this up before, uh, but uh, this is just an example of what this is not talking about. Uh, Homer, not the cartoon character, the historical writer Homer, he wrote uh, the history of the Trojan War in about 700-800 B.C. But do you know when the Trojan War supposedly happened? It happened 300 years earlier. So do you know what people and historians and critics say today? Well, he wrote a history 300 years after the war happened, so we can't really take his word for it because he's so far removed from the actual event itself. But do you know what we know about Luke and the other gospel writers? They, not, they did not write 300 years later. They actually wrote from the manuscripts that we have, and this is not disputed, somewhere between 10 and 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. 
And so when Luke says, the eyewitnesses are out there, I did my research, and they can fact-check me on them, he's writing and he's putting this work out there. Now, if Luke was making stories up, this would have gotten shot down completely by all of the people that supposedly did or didn't see this. They would have said, that's just a fabrication. Luke is just making this up, but we don't have any of that. It's kind of like, um, let's say that you, uh, you, you, you tweet, I just won the lottery. You tweet that out, and I get that message. And then I, I text you real quick. I said, you want to be my friend? But then I check the news, and I check Google, and no, you didn't win the lottery. In fact, there's no lottery at all. Your word would be incredible because I can check the sources. I can check the facts. All of the fact checkers were there in the first century A.D. And Luke wouldn't have written this and published it and, uh, unless he would have really known that those fact checkers were there. So the Bible is really written, especially the Gospels, too early for it to be a fairy tale. In other words, um, not only is it historically in the right place at the right time, but the whole genre, some people say, well, the Bible and the Gospels is mixing truth and fiction, and they're going back and forth mixing truth and fiction. Uh, Another thing uh, to think about is that the Bible is written in historical prose. That's a style in the first century that's not a myth. There was a style called a myth, like Beowulf, you students going back to school. You're going to study that. You're going to study those old and ancient myths, and they sound nothing at all like what you have in the Bible and what you have in the four Gospels. That whole myth and fiction and history mix like you have in Game of Thrones today or Boardwalk Empire or Downton Abbey, that whole style of mixing truth and fiction together developed novel in the novel probably the 18th or 19th century. And so even the style is too early. Um, Number two, uh, the Bible is historically unreliable and the second reason that we can say that it is reliable is because it's too honest. The Bible is too honest. What I mean is this. The Bible includes things, like you heard those Emmaus disciples say. They said, on the day of the resurrection, they tell Jesus, our women went to the tomb and they came back and they told us that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, that's important to note that it was women that saw Jesus first. And it was recorded that women saw him first because women were not credible eyewitnesses in the first century AD. They couldn't go to court and they couldn't be a witness. That was just the way society was then. And so why would I, if I'm making up a story, and I'm trying to do a power play on you, I'm trying to get you to believe my story, why would I say that women were at the tomb? Why don't I put men there? But Paul, I mean, but Luke and all of the writers are way too honest. They say, no, it was the women that were there first. And when you think about it, if they're trying to do a power play with writing scripture and people will say, well, you know, these are written, these are fairy tales that were written so that they could gain as much power as they could to consolidate the power. Well, why would I, as a leader of the church, James, who didn't believe in Jesus for most of his life, Peter, who fell into the water because of lack of faith, these guys are painted as absolutely, incredibly, painfully human The heroes of the church, like Peter, who was an administrator and in the church, a leader of the church, even when he was um, uh, the, the leader of the church, he showed prejudice against another group, and it's recorded in Scripture. It's way too honest. If I were writing that, I would hit delete, 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 wipe the hard drive. I don't want any bad news about me, but the stories are there. Why does Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, ask to get out of it? Why does Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, say, God, why have you forsaken me? That's not made up by humans. At least not a human story. But it's all there, and it's way too honest. 
Another little thing about the honesty of the Bible is Jesus predicts the downfall of the temple. And he says that, that, that all of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. He says that in the Bible. But nowhere in the Bible does it ever record it when it actually happened in 70 A.D. They could have done that, but they didn't because the Bible was written too early and too honestly. And so the Bible is reliable. It is written honestly. It is written early. And I could go on and on. Um, you're asking, you're just talking about the Gospels right now, Pastor. What about the Old Testament? What about all those stories? And my answer is, it's only 20 minutes, okay? Just give me a break. We have a congregation meeting, and we've got to get that started before 2 p.m. So the short answer to that is this. We know that Jesus was credible, and we know the writings about Jesus are credible. All the stories. We have the Word of God. Do you know what Jesus believed about the Old Testament? He brought the Emmaus disciples to the Old Testament when he said this, verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It sounds to me like Jesus believes the Old Testament is true and it's credible. In fact, this is just one quote. He quotes the Old Testament again and again and again. And if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. The truth is this. The New Testament is written too early, realistically and honestly, to be a myth. And Jesus believed the Old Testament to be equally as credible. The second objection that people have I'll wait for the screens to catch up. If you're you're one of those people that loves filling in the blanks, I'll give you a second, okay? But we're moving right along. Number two, people say the Bible is culturally offensive. And this is probably a bigger deal today in 21st century North America than the historicity. Not many people are interested in looking at manuscripts and testing what time of the the history they were written. This probably hits closer to home, and it might hit you closer to home. People say the Bible includes... Polygamy. Does God condone polygamy? I mean, there was Abraham and David taking on many, many wives, and God allowed that? I mean, can I trust the Bible? The the Bible condones slavery. Have you ever heard that before? The Bible condones slavery. Yep. And so why should I trust the Bible if the Bible condones slavery? The answer is the Bible has a culture. It includes human culture. And the Bible, in its culture, may not be saying what you think it's saying. That's one option. Here's an illustration of that. This last April, I was at a diversity conference at Austin Community College. Um, And walking into the conference, you know, they were probably looking at me as a white, middle-aged male and thinking the most diverse thing is my choice of coffee. But it was a great conference, and it had included a lot, a lot of different people, a lot of different race, a lot of different opinions. And in a college town, there was a lot of opinions that, real frankly, they weren't very complimentary to a biblical worldview. Well, we were sitting around a table in the breakout uh, groups, and I was sitting there with two ACC administrators, a student, and a vice principal of a major high school in town. And we were having our discussion, and uh, it was going really well. We were getting along great. And then the leader of the whole conference, he said, now you are assigned to go out to lunch with your group and have a conversation there, just about anything you want. And so that's what happened. We went out to lunch, and as we sat down for lunch, the first question that comes out of my friend, my new friend, the ACC administrator, uh, she was a female, she asked this, so you're a pastor. What, is your te- what does your church teach about the role of men and women? 
<laughs> and I thought to myself, thank you, God. What a great opener. Um, and this is what I said. I said, well, first of all, I'll tell you what I believe about the role of men and women. I believe, first, that my Savior died on a cross. I didn't put my hands out. I believe that my Savior died on the cross to forgive all of my sins. And I believe every man and woman, boy and girl, are by nature sinful. And that you can see that in this broken world. You can see it on the news. You can see it anywhere. And that starts in the heart. And it starts in me and it starts in you. But, I said, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me, that God came to earth and he made a sacrifice for me that forgives me, that gives me hope that my sins are forgiven and that I'm going to live forever with him in heaven. And, I said, that's why I believe in the role of men and women. Why, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. In other words, I don't believe that I have to keep my wife in submission to me because I'm fearful of a power play that she's going to do against me, but I'm going to love her with leadership, love her with listening, love her with communication, love her with sacrifice, like a sacrifice like he made for me. And then I said, and what do you think my wife feels when she's feeled, felt love? She feels respect. And that's why Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 5, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And at the end of the conversation, I'll never forget her face or her words. She said this. She said, I've never heard it like that before. Why? Because she had viewed and continually viewed her assumptions about the word of God through her cultural lens and her own cultural lens. And her cultural lens, and maybe your cultural lens before this, has always been the role of men and women is made by a human institution and, and put into scriptures so that the dominant gender can always be in control of the weaker gender. That's what the cultural vision that many people have of it. But when you look into God's word and you see what's true, you see that it actually reflects what Christ did for me and for you. It's beautiful. That's why... Um, Jesus points that out to the Emmaus disciples. Look at this. The Emmaus disciples, they appear, Jesus appears to them on the road, and as they're walking along, they take Jesus to school. They say, I can't believe you don't know that uh, this, all this happened with the Messiah, with Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, tell me more. And in verse 19, he says, they say to Jesus, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. In other words, everything that they said was right. Jesus was handed over. He was crucified. But do you know what plans they had for Jesus, the Messiah? They were hoping that Jesus, the Messiah, would be the political figure that would rise up, that would call out to the nation of Israel. Everybody would drop their plows and pick up their pitchforks and march to Jerusalem, march to the capital, overthrow the Roman government, and put the throne of David back in place. That's what they meant when they said, we hope that he would redeem Israel. But Jesus didn't do any of that. Why? Because their cultural vision, their, their view, their cultural lens was this. It was driven by class warfare. And they thought they had an idea about Jesus that just wasn't true at all. God's culture, God's view for the Messiah was totally different. His view was this. He says, my cultural lens is to die, to rise, and to be taken back up into glory. That Jesus says a couple of verses later. Why? Because he wanted to save the world. He had salvation in view. 
not a political uprising. And so we can easily get caught up when we don't test our assumptions about what the Word of God is actually saying. Does the Bible actually condone polygamy? I was disturbed by that going through seminary my senior year. And I was disturbed because there was all these heroes of faith like Abraham and David taking on all these wives. And I was so disturbed that I talked to a professor. And you know what the professor said to me? Professor Bivens, I'll never forget. He says, if something in Scripture or in the Bible is, is bothering you, research it and write about it. So what did I do? I went into the Bible and I checked over every story of polygamy. And you know what I found? Guys, don't do it. It's a train wreck every single time. Nothing turns out good. It's always wrong. And then there's no place in Scripture where polygamy actually turns out to be a good thing and God never blesses it. My cultural assumption was tested that God condones polygamy. He doesn't. Slavery. Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? Does it? Really? Well, Paul says, you know, slaves obey your masters. Through our cultural lens, do you know how we look at that as 21st century North Americans? We think of the movie Roots, right? We think of kidnapping in Africa, which is wrong. Splitting up families, selling people off, which is wrong. And then we take our cultural lens and we apply it to Scripture. And we say, whoa, how terrible is that? They're, 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 Paul is saying, slaves obey your masters. But have we ever looked in the cultural view of the first century A.D. Roman world, where a slave or a servant who had a debt or wanted to live in a household would give their services and contractually agree to be a servant for a set amount of time. Very often, slaves and servants were higher educated than their masters, and they very often won their freedom. I'm not saying there was never abuse, but, then, but didn't God condone slavery? Well, check Exodus where God writes about slaves to his own people. He says this. He says, you can take slaves. You invented that whole thing, but you cannot keep a slave for over six years because I didn't make you to be slaves. I made you to be free. We need to test the assumptions that you have about the Bible and the world has about them and start looking them through God's lens. And, and by the way, what if something is offensive to you and it's just there's no getting around it? And you see it for what it is in the Bible. Is that all that bad? If something offends you in the Bible and you say, oh, I just don't like that, God, that you said that, 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 you, would, that you would tell us that this is the way that you want me to live sexually or this is the way that you would want me to live with um, <laughs> roles of men and women or whatever it is, is that all that bad that we disagree with God? Have you ever seen the original movie, The Stepford Wives? Do you know what I'm talking about? They were perfect. They were obedient. They had the house ready and clean, didn't they? I just saw a couple of wives looking over to their husbands right now. Just be careful there. <laughs> they were robots. Was there a relationship there between a man and a woman? None. Have you made God into a robot? Where anything that he says that upsets you, you just are going to throw him away. Or you're going to fix him to be compatible with what your culture is. If I would have just thrown away all of the Bible because I was disturbed by polygamy, or if somebody throws away all of the Bible because they're uh, upset about the culture that God talks about there, what are they missing out on? The cross. If God and his culture offends you, he's asking you to grow. 
and to understand your culture isn't the only culture, but really his culture is the culture that he wants you to grow under. And so the Bible is culturally offensive. Number one, it probably isn't saying what you think it is. And if it is, and you're still offended by it, he wants you to grow in a real relationship with him and his culture and not be a step for God. (laughs) He wants you to really have a relationship with him. Number three, the Bible is offensive. I'm sorry, the Bible is not personally transforming. Many people today, and maybe you've said it before in your life, uh, before you really got to know what the Bible is all about, they say, the Bible is good. I mean, it has its bad parts, but there are the parts in the Bible that teach good wisdom. Like, there's some good tidbits to live by. Um, But check out what the Emmaus disciples say after Jesus has opened up the Scripture to them and he has explained the whole story of uh, God's grace through him, through the Scripture. Uh, The disciples are sitting there, eating with Jesus. He breaks bread. He disappears, and then they say to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the Scripture to us? That doesn't sound like he just opened up Aesop's fables and told a couple of good stories about how to live. What Jesus had done for them, what made their heart burn was what? It says right here that the Scripture was opened up to them. You won't find the scripture, the Bible, edifying if you never open it up. But Jesus opened it up and walked alongside with these disciples, and he did this. He told them the story of how broken that they were. That started in the Garden of Eden, where a man and a woman had a perfect relationship with God, but they broke that relationship with him. And you can imagine Jesus walking them through the scriptures and saying, but God didn't give up on them. God didn't. He wanted that relationship back and he wanted to give them life and so he promised a head crusher. And let me tell you about that head crusher. He was promised through a family named Abraham and that family, God promised, would become a great nation and God brought this man that was a hundred years old and his wife too to become uh, the father and mother of a great nation. And in that great nation, he brought forth a king named David and that king, God promised, would have a kingdom that would go on forever and ever and ever. But, 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 But David died He wasn't talking about David's kingdom. He was talking about a different kingdom. And you can imagine Jesus opening up the scripture to them about Isaiah and about how that there would be a suffering servant that Isaiah talked about 500 years before this conversation where a servant would come and suffer for the iniquities and by his wounds people would be healed. And then finally he got to the point and he said, and that Jesus, the Messiah that died, is your Messiah, not your Savior, to save you from the Romans, but your Savior to save you from hell, save you from death, and give you eternal life. And their hearts burned within them. That Savior came not to just give good advice or drip good advice down to you, but Jesus was saying this, that Savior came to live for you. You, I'm talking about you here today. To die for you. To turn you, a robber, a thief into a generous and loving person by his sacrifice to turn you, the cheater, um, the addict, into a faithful, devoted child of God. And he only did that because he gave his life for you. And you can only find that when you open up the scripture and you walk along with Jesus. And he opens up the scripture to you. 
You're probably wondering, well, that's great. I wish I, had, I could walk along with the Emmaus disciples and be in that conversation with Jesus and walk along the road and have Jesus open up all the scripture to me. You can. Doesn't Jesus say, where two or three are gathered in my name? Yeah. There I am with them. Why do we push you to be here in worship, to hear God's word? Because we want your hearts to burn within you when the scripture is opened up to you. And maybe it's happening right now. We want you to be in a relationship with Jesus and to be gathered where two and three people are in connect groups, in youth group. You students going back to school, we want to keep you connected, especially when the attacks historically and culturally are going to just come flying at you. And they will very soon if they have not already. We want to keep you connected to him. We want you to walk along the road with him because he opens up the scripture. We end our series uh, with the Holy Spirit. And do you know what the Holy Spirit's job is? The Holy Spirit's job is not to be the center of attention. His job is to be the spotlight that shines a light on the cross. And you won't find that unless you open up the scriptures. And you can. And you do. And we want you to continue to do that because just as the Maya's disciples said this, we're not our hearts burning within us when he opened up the scripture to us. You too can say, yes, my heart burns within me. My Savior's with me. His Spirit is inside of me. And I yearn to open up His Word again and again. Now let that be your goal this year. Students, to open up Scripture. To stay connected. You might be going back to school or you might be going back to the cubicle. But keep that Spirit. Keep your daily devotions close to you. If you need help finding a daily devotion, talk to your pastor. If you need to be connected to a group of Christians throughout the week, we can help because we want that fire to burn within you, just like those Emmaus disciples did on the road. Amen.